when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be discussing why global leaders aren't facing up to the world's economic challenges and how the EU FN campaign is already full of fear and loathing. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by former Shadow Chancellor and FT journalist Ed Balls, our chief foreign commentator Gideon Rackman, political editor George Parker, and our political columnist Janan Ganesh. Thank you all for joining. So we'll begin by looking at politicians on the world stage and whether they're failing to do their job. In a piece for the FT this week, Labour's former Shadow Chancellor Ed Bors argued that the G20 world leaders need to act before we face another economic meltdown. And I'm delighted to have Ed with us in the studio today. So Ed, in your piece, you argued that the G20 came of age during the 2009 financial crisis where world leaders all stepped in together, driven by your former boss, Gordon Brown, to stop a meltdown of the system. Why is it time for that again? I think, first of all, the first two months of this year have been pretty shaky for the world economy, not just at equity markets and credit markets, but it's clear there is a deeper slowdown again happening in the Eurozone. Different indicators point in different directions in America because the jobs data have been a bit better, but investment, trade and sentiment is certainly feeling more pessimistic. Nobody's thinking there'll be a quick rise in interest rates from the Federal Reserve. Clearly around the world, emerging markets are having a very difficult time. And the argument I was making this week was not that there will be another downturn, because we, we don't know. And you can argue that the fall in oil prices might be good for consumers and good for sentiment. But at the moment, the risks are on the downside. And politicians have a choice. Do they cross their fingers and hope for the best? Or do they take action now, which will be helpful if things get worse later in the year? You had the International Monetary Fund and the OECD, both organisations not known for being big risk takers, uh, normally quite diplomatic, both came out before the summit and said, there's flatlining growth. We need collective action from the G20. That should include fiscal action, infrastructure spending, and nothing was agreed at the weekend, and it was very disappointing. So Gideon, often I think people see politicians gather for the G20, the G7, and they all seem to meet and they all sort of shake their heads very earnestly and think that things need to be done. But, you know, do you think Ed's right in this case that they shouldn't be crossing their fingers? And, you know, what could they actually do, do you think? Well, I mean, I think it tends to be the case. I mean, if Ed cited uh, effective G20 action in just after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. But I think that's the point. They had seen the collapse of Lehman Brothers. They had absolutely, apparently, no alternative but to act. And they did so pretty effectively. But I wondered, I mean, you were closely involved in those events. I mean, if you'd been able to look forward to, to where we are now, would you have been surprised that we're still struggling with the aftermath of the crisis? Or was that more or less what one would expect after a major shock? Well, back in that period, uh, 2008 and nine, I was um, the education secretary in charge of schools here in Britain. But I also talked quite regularly to Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown. 
they were talking at the time as to whether this would be, you know, a five-year plan to get the deficit down. My view was we had just gone through the economic equivalent of a world war, a massive financial event. And the reality, as we know, from the 1930s, which was probably the last economic event on that scale, you could argue the early 70s, the implications, the aftershock lasts years and years and years. So it doesn't surprise me that confidence has been slow to recover, that people are still wary about going into into long-term investing again. There are some people who say we're into a whole new world of secular stagnation, a new normal of sub-trend growth. Some people say trend is just much lower now, our economies are weaker. Others say, actually, this is just a long recovery. But in a way, it doesn't matter which theory you believe in. The fact is, growth is weak. Incomes have been quite stagnant for consumers. The political implications of it are quite clear. And we need some action. I guess the thing I would just say, Gideon, when I think back to the end of the 2000s and the, the, you know, the G20 of 2009, one, every big country in the world was focused on preventing a depression. Now, America's focused on its elections, Europe on the euro crisis, China on its exchange rate. But the second thing is the G20 only works, international cooperation in the world only ever works when America wants it. If America says we want collective action, and in particular, if America is willing to join forces with Britain and France to push Germany to do collective action, that it happens. That was the story of Bonn in the 70s, the Plaza and Louvre Accords, the 2009. At the moment, America has disengaged from global action on the economy. And when that happens, you lose collective sense, you lose the impetus to act. I think Germany needs to be put under pressure to do more. But without America, it won't happen. Mm. I mean, one of the things that kind of disconcerts me is, uh, you know, I'm not an economics journalist, but obviously I work at the FT, so I hear a bit of it, is the extent to which we're now using policies that would have been regarded as unthinkably unorthodox in the past, you know, QE, but now also talking of negative interest rates and all of that. And it, I mean, you're a football fan. It reminds me of when the, the crowd chant at the ref, you know, you don't know what you're doing. We have this sense that policymakers are kind of making it up on the hoof. They don't fully understand what they're up to. Is that fair? Well, I think that finance ministers, the politicians, have relied on the central banks year after year since the end of the 2000s to do the work to keep the economy growing. And the fact is that central banks, from being a really stabilising force for a number of years, they're running out of road. It's getting much harder. Once you start getting into negative interest rates, the signals that sends, what it does to credit markets, the way it distorts prices, the way it can lead to accusations of competitive devaluation. You heard that in careful language from Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England this week. It starts to cause kind of real risks and, and dangers. Now, in desperate times, you do desperate things. And mm. the only thing available is negative interest rates. And I think for the ECB at the moment, their only choice is QE. And thank goodness they are doing it. But I think that governments have got to do a bit as well. So I would say in a careful way, you should have some fiscal action alongside monetary action, doing it all with one leave. There's a phrase from the 1930s and from Keynes looking at the 1930s that you end up pushing on a piece of string. Well, that's what it feels like at the moment. The other issue you've got as well, as you mentioned, the US not providing the sort of the oomph there is the rise of the anti-politics people. You know, you've obviously got Donald Trump who's rolling forward in, in America, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK as well. And a lot of that is prompted by people who feel left behind by globalisation, you know, these left behind groups of voters. I and mean, they've sort of just given up on the ruling class in a way, you know. Do you think that feeds into it as well? Well, I certainly think in 
Congress, first of all. I would date the collapse of the strong G20 consensus at the end of the 2000s to, first of all, the change of government in Britain, where we move from backing international action to supporting a German view that we shouldn't be doing things. But secondly, the budget shutdown and the poor midterms that Obama had in 2011-12, that I think forced American politics inwards. And the reality is that Congress in general, especially the House, they're deeply sceptical about the Federal Reserve acting within America, let alone internationally. There are some people in Congress who don't really think the Federal Reserve should exist at all. So you have a political movement in America, which has come, become isolationist, anti-government action, quite anti-monetary activism. That, I think, has sort of made it very hard for the American executive to look outwards. They're looking very inwards. I would actually say that I don't think that what you're seeing in terms of politics is a sort of a reaction to that. But I think it's a reason why politicians should worry because, you know, as I said in my piece in This Week in the FT, the combination of stagnant growth, populism in politics, worries about competitive devaluation, it has a sort of a bit of a 30s echo to it. And that's something we should focus people's minds. It's extraordinary as well, Giddings, we were both out on the um, campaign trail that Ted Cruz, who was the man who led the government shutdown, is now sort of number two, essentially, Donald Trump in this. And I think, you know, if Ted Cruz did get the Republican nomination, or that's now looking less likely, um, you know, he wants to shut down the IRS and take a very, uh, you know, oddly isolationist view for America. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the Trump phenomenon is so bizarre, one doesn't really know what, what to say. But the interesting thing is that the alternatives to Trump, regarded, you know, perhaps correctly as less scary, but they're still pretty radical in, in their extremely right wing. I mean, Cruz, Rubio, the, uh, so these are very, very, would have been regarded as way off the scale right wing, you know, 10 years ago. I think in America, people are um, torn at the moment between um, thinking, well, surely Trump will fade, or it's a disaster, or actually of the candidates, certainly him and Cruz, maybe he's the guy who might become more reasonable as we get towards the presidential election. He's the guy who, in some ways, he's less of an ideologue than Cruz and more of a, of a populist. I think the interesting question is, um, when I arrived at Harvard back in September, analyst after analyst who would say, Trump oh, will definitely it, yeah. fade, he's yeah. bound to. And I said, well, people said that about Jeremy Corbyn in Britain in May and June and July, and it didn't happen. And are you sure? The interesting thing, though, is people who are voting for Trump, they're voting for him because he's an outsider. He, he's a protest against the system. He expresses their frustration. The reason he gets away with not having any policy is because people aren't looking to him for action. They're looking for him as a vessel for dissatisfaction at the current establishment. The interesting question will be, once he's actually been tested as a potential decision maker, he might actually have policies because he'll have to have some of that. Will people start to think, well, you know, I quite like voting for him as a protest guy. But as a president, am I sure? It's an interesting question. Yeah. But I mean, do you think one of the reasons people are looking at, at Trump and in the UK, they, they looked at, uh, and indeed Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. And Farage as well. And Farage, is that what we were talking about earlier, that the kind of, the elite have lost control of the narrative, partly because what they say no longer seems convincing. People say, look, well, we had this huge crisis and now we've had nine years of it and you guys haven't sorted it out yet. So maybe it's time to look at other alternatives. And then there's somebody 
you know, who's steeped in conventional economics and has been, you know, at the center of politics, how do you reconstruct an economic narrative that not only works as policy, but that makes sense to people? Well, I think you have to start always in politics with where people are and their concerns and see how you can take things to a good place. And I think there's a, a sense that what's happened in the last few years is that, is that uh, politicians too often have tried to just dismiss or push away um, voters' concerns on the one hand. On immigration, do you think? On immigration, or to give the idea that it can be easily solved. So I would say, go back five, six years ago, mm. you had David Cameron saying, don't worry, elect me, I'll get it down to the tens of thousands, and Labour not talking about it enough. And actually, both have been a bit discredited, because if you don't talk about it, people think you're out of touch. And if you promise a glib solution and it doesn't deliver, then you lose um, credibility. Mm. So I think that, um, that, that you have to have things to say which understand people's concerns, but then take them to really deliverable action. In the case of immigration, that's very hard. In the case of corporate tax avoidance, it's proved to be very hard. But if you just dismiss these issues, and I'm afraid what's happened in the States is people who support Trump think he's saying the things that they think politicians should say, and they've not been saying enough in recent years. And so he's voicing that concern. That is stage one of politics. If you don't voice people's concerns first, then you can't be the guy who they trust to deliver. Right. And then I suppose the last thing I just want to ask you about, Ed, is that you mentioned all these sort of factors in the world that are uncertainty. The other one, of course, is the EU referendum and Brexit. You know, this is a huge thing. And we saw that when the announcement of Boris Johnson diving into the out campaign, that there was a big shake in Sterling, you know, and everyone was wondering, you know, what does this mean? Does this show that Brexit is going to be a real danger here? You know, there is also an argument that by Britain having this debate right now, are we pulling ourselves away from the world stage and focusing too much? Or is this just trying to seize control of our place in the world again? Well, look, we are where we are, aren't we? We're having a referendum in June. Uh, whether it was wise to have a referendum when the Eurozone was still in an economic crisis, when we had a, a refugee crisis on our doorstep, and at a time when the world economy was in a very vulnerable state, is um, a matter historians will debate in a few years' time. It's not where we are now. And... Uh, there's no doubt that in the short term, it will add to the sense of uncertainty. I think what it also does is it focuses things too inward. So um, in the past, at times when you need a global leadership, Britain has been a voice on the global stage. At the moment, we're debating whether we should even be a voice on the, the European stage. So we're absenting ourselves from these global conversations. The only thing which George Osborne really seemed to offer at the weekend was a contribution from the communique at the G20 meeting on the world's views about Brexit. Now, I'm not sure that's enough. I think he also ought to be talking about what the world's going to do to deliver some growth and some job creation and some optimism for the future. I'm just going to very quickly ask, if you were to put a bet on the EU referendum result now, what do you think it's going to be? Well, I'm going to be voting for us to stay in. I think that we will win the argument to stay in. But Scotland is a very important example because it shows you can just win a referendum and lose the emotional argument. And the emotional argument is about whether people really feel that this is kind of what they want and whether it's right and does it express really where they see the country going. And uh, if we're going to win this properly, we need to win that emotional argument. And that partly depends upon um, us getting the reforms we need. It depends upon more optimism in the UK economy, in the EU economies. I don't think we're going to see that quickly. Uh, so I think it's going to be a tough campaign. I think we'll win, but I think the debate about Britain's long-term future is going to carry on well after this referendum, whatever the result. 
And now back onto the EU referendum, which has taken a rather nasty turn this week. Those campaigning for Britain to remain in the EU have warned of the dangers of economic collapse, more refugees coming across the English Channel, and even of all-out war in Europe if we vote to leave the EU. The out-campaigners, on the other hand, have said these arguments are pure hyperbole and are needlessly scaremongering voters. So George Parker, I think we all knew this campaign would descend into everyone throwing about threats and fears and dangers. And it's a big look back to the Scottish referendum, which was known as Project Fear, the campaign to keep the union together, which worked. Do you think it has got too nasty too soon or is this sort of just all part of the game plan for the in campaign to win? Well, I think it's got as nasty as I expected pretty much as soon as I expected, to be quite honest. I think anyone who lived through the Maastricht episode back in the 90s would sort of see how very quickly these things descend into name-calling, um, people accusing each other of lying, essentially. Because for the people who want to leave the European Union, the Tory party especially, this is the most important thing in their political lives. And they hear David Cameron making these claims. They, they see him recruiting foreign businessmen and foreign leaders to make the case for him. And they see this as a campaign of deception. And there's no doubt that this will get worse over the next four months. And by the end of it, it will be very difficult, I think, for the Tory party to be put back together again. We'll come back to the personalities in a moment. But Janan, you did a column um, for the FT a few weeks ago, basically saying the in-campaign is going to run a very boring thing, focused on a very sort of tight message. Do you think they're doing the right thing by throwing around these claims? Because, you know, you've got to admit, you know, some of them are true and do have basis. Some of them are just total, you know, totally over the top. Some of them are historical claims, but they tend not to come from the central campaigns in favour of Remain. They'll come from pro-Europeans generally who are getting carried away. But I do sometimes look at the Eurosceptics and wonder what they expected was going to happen. Did they seriously think the Remain campaign would not play the economic fear card, given that it is the strongest argument for staying in. And I also wonder what they think is achieved by calling it Project Fear. You don't stop voters fearing something just by accusing the other side of playing on their fears. And I think the Scottish referendum campaign, the campaign to preserve the union, was absolutely slated for its negativity until the day it won. And David Cameron's general election campaign this time last year was taken to pieces, really, for being uh, narrow and lacking in vision until the day it won. And I suspect that column I wrote was a few weeks ago, but I haven't changed my view. I suspect we'll see something similar over the spring and early summer, that it'll be uh, quite a poisonous campaign. Some of the fears raised by David Cameron will really aggravate Eurosceptics. They'll think that the public are being misled and terrified. And on the day, it will end up working. And that's partly because the fears are reasonable. It's only rational to make a worst case assumption if you vote for Brexit. But I suppose the problem is, as George just said, um, it might win the campaign, but it might break the Tory party. You know, do you think that you know, there's, there's a lot of bad feeling in the party already? And as you said, we've got a lot more of it to come. How big of a problem is that? A huge problem. And there's a relatively recent history of the party falling apart on that one issue. I think what makes things a little bit more promising now compared to, say, the Maastricht era, is that in the mid-1990s, they knew they were going to lose in 1997. So in many ways, if you're a sceptic Tory backbencher or even minister, there was no reason not to misbehave. You could cause chaos and bring the house down because the house was falling down anyway. If you have a decent expectation of winning, not only in 2020, but conceivably in 2025, given the state of the opposition, there is something to lose, a really tangible benefit to lose, 
if you do make the Conservative Party ungovernable. And that prize that you're losing is years and years and years in power. So I wonder whether that acts as a, as a moderating force. And the, the other difference between now and the 1990s is the fact of the referendum. In the 1990s, in the 2000s, Eurosceptic Tories, quite rightly in my opinion, were angry because of the absence of a referendum. And they pushed consecutive Labour prime ministers, they pushed consecutive Tory leaders to offer a referendum David Cameron was holding out as recently as the end of 2012. The fact that he's given them one is, I think, takes some of the poison out of the, the discussion because if the country votes to stay in, what are they raising a complaint against? They can't be raising a complaint solely against David Cameron. It's a complaint against the British public and the decision they made. I suppose now, George, if we look, there's been a, quite an astounding piece by Ian Duncan Smith, who's the well, welfare and pension secretary in the Daily Mail this week, where he opens both bowels at the Remain in campaigners. Now, he doesn't name David Cameron or Downing Street there, but he might as well have in that piece, you know. And you see this new thing, this man's part of the cabinet. How is he going to hold his job? And does he even want to have his job after all this bloodletting? Well, you've heard expressions like baloney and dodgy dossiers being thrown in the direction of the Prime Minister this dodgy week. Dodgy dossier is a particularly good one, I think, indeed, this from, week. from members of his cabinet. And it was interesting to hear Ian Duncan Smith writing, or see Ian Duncan Smith writing in the mail today that he's worried about the consequences for party unity after the referendum, which was exactly the same point that was being made by Rupert Harrison earlier this week, formerly George Osborne's chief of staff, now working for BlackRock, that it will be difficult to put it back together. And I think the mood in the party on both sides of the argument has got worse in the last week, and people are filled with foreboding. I was speaking to a pro-European who said that, you know, he doesn't think that the Eurosceptics will let this go after the referendum. Why would they? They haven't let it go for 30 years, he said. So I think there is a fear. I'm a bit more hawkish, I think, on this than Janan about the the dangers to party unity. I can see that Janan's argument about the fact that there is at least a referendum at the end of it and it can be settled. But the idea this will settle it for a generation, I think, is as unlikely as the claim that the Scottish referendum was going to settle that for a generation. So I suppose the question then comes, What does that actually mean? So, you know, you have the referendum. I think David Cameron would say, you know, if he wins like the Scottish referendum, we won't be having another referendum unless something substantially changes. Is this going to be some kind of split, do you mean, in the party? Or is this just going to be people just agitating about this as they have for the past 30-odd years? I don't think the party is going to split. I don't think the idea that the whole part of the Conservative Party will branch off and set up another party or join UKIP. Neither of those, those things are remotely attractive to members of the Conservative Party. But I think this will be seen as a defining moment. Which side were you on in, this, in the 2016 debate? And how, I mean, David Cameron, I think, is probably as good a politician at putting this back together, as you can imagine. But nevertheless, I still think that over the next four months, you will have MPs who fear that he's lied his way to victory, if indeed he secures a victory. If he doesn't, then all bets are off. And the other figure we've heard quite a lot from this week, Janan, is Boris Johnson, who is firmly of the Leave camp. You know, he once was toying with voting Leave to then stay in, but he's now firmly in the Leave situation. And he's said quite a lot, made a lot of warnings, his latest one about if we stay in the EU, it'll be like a frog in a pot of boiling water. Um, how, you know, how much of this is about Boris putting himself forward versus trying to further the Leave campaign? If he is motivated by his own ambitions, there's nothing disgraceful about that. We expect politicians to crave the top job. I can probably introduce you to 650 MPs who at some stage thought they should be party leader. Where the dilemma falls for Boris is exactly how much of a front man is he going to be for the Leave campaign. He is their biggest asset, an overrated asset in my view, but clearly their their most popular potential front man. But we know that he's probably a bit more ambivalent on the subject than he's entirely letting on. And he doesn't want to be seen too nakedly to be taking on the Prime Minister. 
Therefore, he almost has an incentive to let it be known that he's pro-leave, as he's already done, without actually leading the batting over the next four months. So I wonder whether he ends up being a bit less prominent in the campaign than we may have expected a couple of Sundays ago when he declared his intentions. I think the only counterweight to that is that um, Boris Johnson is going to appear on the BBC Andrew Marr programme on Sunday. And so the idea that he'll be somehow pushed into the background during the campaign, I think is probably a bit fanciful. I think it's going to be uncomfortable with, for him. I agree with Janan that he is ambivalent about it. In fact, I don't think he's an outer at all. And I think he'll struggle to defend some of the economic arguments. I think you hear a lot, Boris talking a lot about the sovereignty question, but it's the economy, I think, that's his most vulnerable point. He's the mayor of the greatest city in Europe, the biggest financial centre in Europe, which believes passionately our future remains in the European Union. To hear Boris Johnson trying to explain that as the mayor of London, I think, will be quite tricky for him. I think what's going to be interesting on that, I've heard that from the Vote Leave campaign that um, Boris got a lot of commitments for the London mayoral race because we forget as well that, um, you know, we've got Zach Goldsmith going up against Sadiq Khan and Boris obviously wants Zach to win because he obviously wants to be succeeded by a Tory and Zach's an outer as well. So it's going to be, I think there'll be a sense that Boris will get more involved after the mayoral race is finished in, in the beginning of May. But it's the same question with Michael Gove as well, isn't it, George? That, you know, when Michael Gove first said he was going to, campaign for leave I think he told people number 10 that he'd be relatively quite quiet on this front but then he's made all sorts of arguments and public speeches and interviews and all the rest of it well exactly he gave, he gave David Cameron an undertaking he wouldn't be particularly confrontational on this and a day later he appeared on the BBC news tearing to bits the legal basis of the prime minister's deal in Brussels now that's what I'm referring to earlier that people like Michael Gove this is part of their life's political work the idea they're going to hold back now I think is, is completely for the birds. And I agree with Jenna. I think Boris is the most effective weapon for the campaign. It plays into his sort of Churchillian sort of narrative and speech making and all the rest of it. And I think it would be very hard to keep him out of the limelight. He craves the limelight. And finally, Janan, I think the problem that um, Boris has got is one the whole out campaign has got, which is the economic arguments for Brexit, that we've still got a bit of a black hole there about what it means. You know, whenever I speak to MPs who are in favour of Britain, even they always say, ah, but you don't believe in our country. You don't see our country can't strive alone. And it's the answer to that is, well, yes, I can see that. But where's the argument then? I think that isn't that a big problem for all the outers. How can they compensate for that? At the very least, they have to agree on what leaving means. And there's already quite a big fissure in the leave campaign between those who want to leave in order to leave the single market, because that absolves you of uh, free movement. And that's the sort of Nigel Farage argument. And those who say, no, we can leave and still retain pretty much complete access to the single market, which would almost certainly imply continuing to observe free movement. And given that if the economy is not their strongest argument, controlling immigration is the strongest leave argument. If they can't even settle on whether they would have to observe free movement in the events of Brexit, then I think they're in real trouble. And in many ways, it's a phony war for the next couple of months. And the real harsh light of scrutiny doesn't really get switched on until maybe the last few weeks of the campaign. And if your arguments on the economy are not robust by that stage, you can almost see them fall apart in your hands. And then the last thing I'm going to do this, I think pretty much every week now, since we're the 100 aid, I'm going to ask you both, how do you think the result's going to be? George? I still think we're going to vote to stay in by a margin of about 56 to 44. Well, very precise. And Janan? I've always thought we'd vote to stay in by a margin similar to the Scottish referendum, which was 55-45. We'll see if that happens then. Not that well. Long way to go, it feels like, even though it's not that far. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next week for the latest instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast... 
you might like to try our FT News podcasts, which focus on one of the main issues of the day and bring you the insights and expertise of our global network of journalists, as well as outside contributors. You can download these at ft.com slash podcasts most days of the week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.